All right, they told me to say testing. So I'm testing all of you. I mean, I'm testing the microphone. But we're testing something anyway. Okay? Last night, apparently, when or yesterday when I put this thing on, because we don't have these in Spain. We just have those megaphones, you know. I must have touched a button. I guarantee you if there's a button you can touch that will mess it up, I'll find it. <laughs> My middle name is Klutz. We're glad you could be here. We're really glad that the Lord is here with us tonight because he promised in his word where two or three are gathered together in his name, he is there in the midst. And the spiritually minded person learns to discern and appreciate the presence of the Lord in the meetings of the Christians. So we, we see each other and we're glad to see each other, but there's somebody here tonight that we don't see. But if he wasn't here, this meeting wouldn't be what it is. This would just be some neighborhood social club. But when we meet in his name, and he says that whatever we do, we're to do it in his name. He's there in the midst. So my prayer is that each of us will sense the presence of the Lord here tonight, Amen. speaking to us through his word. Now let's turn to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1. We're going to begin reading with verse 5. Luke chapter 1 and verse 5. The word of the Lord says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was one of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And they had no child, because that Elizabeth was barren, and they were both now well stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of the incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John." And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well stricken in years. And the angel answering him, answering said unto him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God, and am sent to speak unto thee, 
and to show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak unto them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. Now we'll come down to verse 57. Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. And it came to pass on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John. And they said unto her, There is none of thy kindred called by this name. And they made signs to his father how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing table and wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marveled all. And his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue loosed, and he spake and praised God. And fear came on all them that dwelt round about them. And all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. Let's pray. We give thanks, Heavenly Father, for the Word of God and for the, this reading that we have had and what information you have given us about the life of John the Baptist. And we just pray that you would bless it to our hearts this evening. We pray that you would take that liberty that you already have to speak to us in any way, to touch any area of our lives, to make us, as we, even as we have been singing, to make us and mold us to be more like you, that we might be able to leave here tonight saying, tonight I met with the Lord. Tonight the Lord spoke to me from his word. Because far beyond any human voice, we need to hear your voice, Lord. 
And so we pray, speak to us. Abide with us. Speak to us and teach us. And be glorified in our meeting tonight, we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We said last night, J. Gresham Machen, it was the person who said it, America is running on the momentum of a godly ancestry. And when that momentum runs out, God help America. We think the momentum is running out. It is nearly gone. The book of Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 29 says, Righteousness exalts a nation but sin is a reproach to any people. God doesn't discriminate. He practices a non-discriminatory policy. Sin is a reproach to any people. It was a reproach to the nation of Israel. And that nation was not living and walking in fellowship with God when the prophet John was born. And when the Messiah came into the world, we saw that on Sunday. We saw how Malachi described the state, the condition of the nation of Israel in the hearts of even the priests of the people in those years before the Lord sent his prophet and before the Lord himself came. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And if sin was a reproach to God's chosen people in the days of the Old Testament, if that nation chosen and taken out of the nations by him and set in that place of special blessing and favor and privilege, the nation of Israel, and given the eternal covenants that cannot be broken, not by the United Nations or anyone else, those eternal covenants that he has made, those promises that he has made, those special blessings that he has given to that nation, if God says that the sin is a reproach to any people and it was a reproach to Israel, we have to say today, without fear of being contradicted successfully by anyone, that sin is a reproach to the evangelical community that has come to neglect God's word. Inasmuch as a church or a people or a family or a person neglects the word of God and lives its own, in its own will and way, that sin is a reproach to that people. And in the old days, when our Lord was about to come into the world, God raised up a prophet to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. And in the same way, or not the exact identical way, but in a similar way, let's say, God is looking for people who will proclaim His Word faithfully in these last days before His Son comes again. The Lord is coming. He promised it in His Word. The time is short. And He's going to take His, his believers, His church, His family, His body, the body of Christ, up to heaven. And then those terrible years of tribulation are coming on the earth when judgments will fall on this earth. And then the Lord at the end will come again and he will establish his kingdom. He will fight against the armies of earth. He will conquer them. He will establish his kingdom. Most people that live around us today do not believe this. And the problem is worse than that. The problem is most people who say that they are evangelicals and believe the Bible don't act like they believe it. They don't live like they believe it. That the Lord is coming. And that it should affect the way we live. And sometimes God has to reach down through the mass of people who say that they are his people. And take a person and make a person his prophet and his messenger in a special way. 
Not trained by the theologians. Not trained by the priests. Not out of the institutes. But someone who has met with God and knows what he says. Someone who is not going to be, hear me now. He's not going to be a company man. He's not going to be a party man. He's not going to preach the party line. He's not going to preach the the official denominational position. He's going to preach what God has to say from his word. Or as we say, call an ace an ace and a spade a spade. Or as we say in Spain, al pan pan y al vino vino. I don't know who speaks Spanish here tonight. That means you call bread, bread, and wine, wine. You call things what they are. That's the way John was. Woe to them that call evil good and good evil, the prophet Isaiah said. Isaiah 5.20. And yesterday as we were looking at the book of Malachi, you know, just right before that passage that we were reading in Malachi chapter 3, just right at the end of chapter 2, that last verse of chapter 2, He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, wherein have we wearied him? When you say, everyone that does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delighteth in them. Or, where is the God of judgment? And I ask you, was that written in Malachi's day or was that written in the 21st century? Where is the God of judgment? Isaiah said it. Hundreds of years later, Malachi said it. And we still have to say it today. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who flip-flop things, and who end up calling things exactly the opposite of what God calls them. Well, how do you know what God calls things? Well, I'll tell you, there's a book that God took the time and the trouble to write and to give to us where he tells us in this book how to call things, how to look at things, how he looks at things. And he is still looking for men and women today who will look at things the way he does and call things what he calls them. It was a problem in Malachi's day. And that problem was still around in the days when John the Baptist came. That's why his voice was like the voice of one crying in the wilderness, in the desert. There weren't any other voices like his. They weren't on the same page we say today. And even though the multitude might have said something else, you might as well learn it from the Bible, even though this is an undemocratic principle that I'm going to teach you now. The majority is nearly always wrong. Maybe I lived in Europe too long. Democracy is not God's plan. When God establishes his kingdom on earth, excuse me, I'm not trying to be unpatriotic. When God establishes his kingdom on earth, it will be a benevolent monarchy. There are not going to be any elections or political parties when that happens. I'm looking forward to that day. I don't know about you. This is the spiritual condition, not only in the days of the Old Testament, but it's the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel at the time when the baby John was born. Look with me in in Luke chapter 1, and let's find here the clues that tell us, that unlock for us a description of the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel. Look at verse 16. Verse 16. 
He says, Many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And we say in Spain, Y eso con que se come? Eso como se come? How do you eat that? What do you do with that? That's what that means. What do you do with that? How's he going to turn the children of Israel to the Lord their God? They already belong to God. They're God's chosen people, God's chosen nation. They were elect. You believe in the doctrine of election? Here's a whole elect nation of people. They were elect and chosen and they didn't believe in him. They were elect unbelievers. They were people who were elected and they were going to hell. Now that has a lot of theological rough edges on it for people who have their systematic theology. I'm sorry. God didn't give me a systematic theology. He gave me a book divinely inspired and he said to read it and study it. He said, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. He said, you will meditate in it day and night. And he promised that if we do that and that if we are concerned to do according to all that is written in this book, he promised a blessing. It will be well with us, he said. Here they are. A nation of people who had the temple, who had the priesthood, who had the sacrifices, who had the prophets and all of the word of God that came only to them, only through their nation to the rest of the world. Only through Israel could the true and living God be known. And yet the people who had that message, the people themselves, you following this? The people themselves needed to be turned to God because it is possible to have God's word in your hand and not have it in your heart. It's possible to go to the temple, to go to the place and meet like we saw the prophet Ezekiel said. They come before you as the people come and they sit before you as my people and they hear your word, but... What did he say? They will not do it. Israel needed to turn to God. And history repeats itself. And there are many people today who are happy and content to sit in an evangelical church without any dynamic personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Their intellect is convinced that that's where they ought to be. Or or the social side of their life is fulfilled because there they have their good, clean friendships and activities, but their heart hasn't been turned to God. And this is a message that concerns me tonight. And if you feel that I'm being intense, I am. You guessed right. Because it concerns me that people can be in the right place and have the right information in their hands and be lost. They never come to repentance. Some places they don't even preach the doctrine of repentance. Some theological seminaries, evangelical theological seminaries, do not even preach the doctrine of repentance anymore. Brothers and sisters and friends, the doctrine of repentance is in the Word of God. It's still there. And no human eraser and no human theologian can take it out of there. In the book of Acts, when he stood there in the city of Athens and spoke to those Athenians when he spoke to those people who were not Jews to those Gentiles to the nations gathered there 
He said that God in the past had passed over. He had, that means he had been long-suffering and patient with man's sin. It doesn't mean that he didn't care about it. But he said he now calls all men to repentance. That is the apostolic preaching of the gospel. Any message that does not include the message of repentance, that allows people to slide in and somehow ease their way in and come in the back door and find themselves infiltrated and sitting down and calling themselves Christians somehow when they have never been through the door of repentance. Repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. That's the message. You can't come to faith in Christ if you haven't had repentance from sin. If you don't know what you're being saved from, you're not saved. If you've never had a fear of the judgment of God, if you've never had that sense of need, if you've never realized what your condition is before God, the Scriptures are full of it. The same Scriptures that teach us about the love of God and the kindness of God and the grace of God tell us that this God of love and grace and kindness and mercy and patience is a God of holiness and justice. And don't give me this baloney about you don't believe in the God of the Old Testament because I'm going to tell you something. There ain't but one God. Excuse my English. There ain't but one God. What do you mean you don't believe in the God of the Old Testament? Get out with that. What do you mean? I believe in the God of the Bible. How many colors does a rainbow have? Well, it's got more than one, doesn't it? A lot of people's concept of God is a rainbow that just has red. Love. That's all. God is love. Oh, there he goes again. He doesn't ever preach God is love. Yes, I do. And I believe God is love. But I'm going to tell you, my concept of God is not a rainbow with one color. All of the attributes of God, just like all of the colors of the visible spectrum form the rainbow, all of the attributes of God should form our concept of God. You can't pick your favorite attribute of God and reduce him to that and say that's what God is. Well, I mean, you can do it if you want to, but you'll be wrong. God is love, yes. But the God that loves us is a God of holiness, and he hates sin. He is a God of wrath, and we will never apologize for the wrath of God, and we will never send God to an anger management seminar. And I'll tell you something, when he pours out those seven bowls of wrath, you ain't seen no wrath until that happens. Everything else was a Sunday school picnic compared to what's coming. The wrath of God. The book of Romans said the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. Not just some of it. God practices a non-discriminatory policy. Sin is a reproach to any people. And the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. And I'm going to tell you something here tonight, friend. That includes your unrighteousness. Young person. You can fool your parents, but you can't fool God. You can slide by and manipulate and ease in and out and not be caught, but you can't fool God. an older person who's learned all the right things to say at the right time. 
The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. God doesn't want play-acting evangelicals. He wants real, born-again, believing Christians. He wants people who know and believe the gospel and who live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because until a person comes to the end of their self, his self, herself, and doesn't live any longer for himself, but lives for Christ. What did Paul say? We saw that in the book of Philippians back in March. I haven't forgotten it. I don't know if you have. For for me to live is... Only a Christian can say that. Only a true Christian. There's a lot of people who are evangelicals who can't say it. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick on the evangelicals tonight. I'm going to pick on all the evangelicals tonight who don't know Christ. And who have empty tradition and an empty theological position and no reality in their lives. That's right. Because we're talking about, he says here, many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And God used a human instrument. People say, oh, well, I don't speak, I don't preach the gospel or witness anyone because only God can, can talk to a person and touch their heart and change them. Uh-huh. And what did, what did John do? He just went and lived in a little cave up on the mountain and said, well, we'll just let God speak to their hearts. Is that what John did? So don't get the idea that all you have to do is believe in God and live your private life and let God deal with people. God will deal with people, brother, sister. God will deal with people. He, do, he does it all the time. He is the God who is involved in humanity. He is the God who has intervened in history. He is involved. But one of the ways in which he is involved, uh-huh, is he uses people. He raised up this prophet. He sent an angel from heaven named Gabriel to tell this man's father that that boy that was going to be born was going to turn many people to the Lord their God. That's God's work. God uses people. God uses human instruments. And if we want to walk in fellowship with God, we have to learn a word. Cooperate. Cooperate with the Lord. Co-labor with the Lord. He needs us. In that sense, he needs us. How does he need us? Well, God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. But in God's plan to use human beings who are converted, human beings who know him, to preach his word and to give it to other people, we can say, in that sense, he needs us. He doesn't need us. He can put the gospel in the clouds. He can speak by his Holy Spirit, and he does directly to people's hearts. But we're saying that the God who has said to us, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature... The God who has said to us, pray ye the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Okay, you understand what I'm saying? I mean it in that sense. We're supposed to be involved. When God went to make a prophet, he took this little baby. And he said, he shall turn Many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. That's verse 16. That's not the only verse. Look down at verse 77. He says, To give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of sins. Because the people that were his people, the nation of Israel, didn't know about salvation. Let me ask you a question. Do you know about salvation? You know about salvation? I sat in a home one night having a visit with someone. And we went and visited. And, the, and the, the woman who sat there and talked to us had been invited 
by the church in this particular place to take the Sunday school and to be a Sunday school teacher. And her father was a teacher in a Christian college. And I said to the brethren, uh, do, you, do you know her testimony? And they said, yes. And I said, would you mind if I went and visited her and found it out? And they said, no, go ahead. And in fact, one of them came with me. And so we went to, to the home of this couple. And as we sat and talked, and I said and called her by name, and I said, um, if you were to die today and stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you answer him? This noise that you hear right now, that's the answer I got. And there was a big fan up on the ceiling there, and I just sat and watched the fan. And I had told the fellow that went with me ahead of time, I said, Now, if I ask a question, don't you jump in and answer it, and don't give any hints. Because it's very important to know how to use questions in personal work. And to give a person a chance to respond because only when they respond do you know what they think and what they understand. And sometimes they get confused or nervous and they can't explain themselves the first time around. So you ask several different kinds of questions from several different angles. So we sat and drank tea, uh, iced tea. And uh, I said, well, let's just suppose that your neighbor here, because we talked about that, suppose your neighbor found out that he had cancer and was going to die. And uh, you're out there talking by the fence, and he said, you know, I know that you're, you and your husband go off to church every Sunday uh, to that church you go to. And he said, I just wonder. I've been thinking a lot about this. I wonder if you could tell me how I could know for sure that I can go to heaven because I never, I haven't been to church since I was a kid. So what would you say to him? What would you say to him? Well, I'd tell him to come to the meeting. Well, suppose he couldn't come to the meeting. He Suppose he was too sick to come to the meeting. Or for some other reason he couldn't come. Suppose you were the only person who could talk to him. What would you tell him? How could he know for sure that if he were to die, he would go to heaven? What would you tell him? You hear that noise? That was the answer. And some people know the answer. Like a parrot knows how to talk. And I told you before, we have a parakeet that can talk. He's just a little bitty thing, but he is smart as he can be. He's got, what, a thimble full of brains? Sometimes I think he's smarter than me. He uses his brains 100%. And I got this big old piece of flesh up here. If I used as much a percentage of mine as he uses his, Einstein would be my student. (laughs) But it don't work out that way. See, it don't work out that way. Ask my kids. It don't work out that way. (laughs) But he's smart. He can say a lot of things. What you doing? Come here, pretty birdie. And I can't think of them all right now. But he can talk. And he he doesn't know how to shut up sometimes. (laughs) Oh, he can say bad birdie and shut up because he's heard that a few times. (laughs) 
They're just words to him that don't mean anything. And you know what? There might be somebody here tonight that's like that. You know all the right words. You wouldn't give me a silent pause. You know all the right words to say because you heard them. You've been taught them. And you know what to say. And every Roman Catholic in Spain, which is 99% Roman Catholic, knows how to say Christ died for our sins. But they don't know what it means. Like one lady said when a man asked her why Jesus died on the cross. And she said, for our sins. And he said, and what does that mean? And she said, I don't know. That's what they told me in Sunday school. Isn't that good enough? You see what I'm talking about? There is a problem in evangelical churches. There is a problem with people who are close to the gospel, who are near to the word of God, who are in the company of people who are believers, but they themselves are lost. And silence or empty words at the best would be their only answer. To give knowledge of salvation, he said. You know how you can know salvation? Let me tell you how you can know salvation. Watch this. By being saved. By getting saved. That's what it means to give knowledge of salvation. It's not talking about, okay, we're going to get all the nation of Israel together in the temple and we're going to have a three-day seminar on salvation. We're going to learn the meaning of the word in Hebrew. We're going to learn the meaning of the word in Greek. We're going to study the theme of salvation as it is developed throughout the Old Testament. No, no, we're not going to talk about any of that. We're not going to get on the theological soapbox. We're going to talk about the knowledge of salvation in a personal way. And you know what? That dear woman that night, she couldn't tell us how to be saved because she didn't know how to get there because she'd never been there. And some people say, well, now I think you're being too hard on this because people sometimes they get confused and they can't explain themselves. So I tell them a story about a man who was crossing a bridge and he fell off of the bridge. He was leaning over and he fell off of the bridge into the water and he couldn't swim and he was drowning. And he went down once and he came up and he went down again. And a third time right before he went down for the last time, somebody saw him and they jumped in and they pulled him to the side and they saved his life. They got him off from the shore and he's laying there <coughs> choking and sputtering. And somebody else comes running up that saw what happened. And they said to, to the man who's choking his sweater, what happened? What happened? And he said, oh, I don't know. I can't explain it very well. Ask him. I don't, I don't know how to read. I haven't studied it. I couldn't say it as good as he could. Get out of here. What are you talking about? I fell in the water. I was drowning and someone saved me. I know what it means to be saved from drowning because I just got saved from drowning. And if you don't know what it means to be saved from sin, it's because you haven't ever been saved from sin. You cannot add Christianity or Jesus Christ to your curriculum of life. He's not an accessory. He's not a satellite radio you add to your car or your home. He's the most vital and important part. And without Him, there isn't any life. You see... To give knowledge of salvation. You get knowledge of salvation by knowing the Savior. Do you know Jesus Christ? I don't ask you if you know about Him. Do you know Him? Have you ever surrendered your life to Him? Have you ever recognized what you are and why you need Him? You pray some prayer in Sunday school or in the youth group or with your parents or with your friends or somebody because you know that's the right thing to do. 
and to get the monkey off your back. You need to be saved. Mm -hmm. The knowledge of salvation. Young people. Young people learn real quick how to get the pressure off of them by saying and doing the right thing at the right time in front of the right people. And you know what? I'm not just going to pick on the young people because we learn that and then we do it all the rest of our lives. And some people spend their whole lives putting up a front and, and living a little plan that they got memorized here that's not who they really are because they never really got the knowledge of salvation. How important it is. How important it is to have the knowledge of salvation by the remission of sins. You see, he says it here. The knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. What does that mean? To take away their sins, to wash them away, to cancel them out, to erase them, to throw them away, to make them disappear. How about it? You know the remission of sins? Your sins been taken away? Are you the same old person you always were, except you just learned how to talk Christian lingo and have Christian activities? You better wake up because one day you're going to meet somebody that you can't fool. And it's not a question of making your husband happy or making your wife happy or making your parents happy or making your friends at church happy. It's a question of being in a right relationship with God. The remission of sins. I'm a sinner. I got a problem. Just like John Bunyan in that story, uh, The Pilgrim's Progress. People don't read that much anymore. I would say every family in this church ought to have that book and ought to read it. We've read it in our home. I don't know how many times. You know what? Some of my children, the ones who are home now, the oldest ones who are at home are, are 20 and 22, the two oldest girls. And you know what they still say to me? Because we've done this all our lives. They say, Daddy, read a book to us at the table. I say, come on, girls. They say, no, no, we'd like for you to read. That's one of our family activities. We'll take a book and we'll read a chapter or half a chapter. We'll read a story. We'll read the Pilgrim's Progress. We'll read some other book. And there he was walking along and he found this book, the Bible, in the city of destruction where he lived. And he started to read it. And he, as soon as he started to read it, he found he had a big burden on his back. You ever had a burden on your back, the weight of sin? See, because when people get saved, it's the remission of sins. It's not the... Yeah, uh yeah, I think I need to be a Christian too. I know that's the best way to live. Nuh-uh. That's not what it's about. It is the best way to live. And even if there were no God, Christianity would still be the best way to live. But it's about having your sins put away. And he lost his burden at the cross. He met a man named Evangelist and he had directed in the right way and he had to go through the narrow gate. And finally he got to that hill where the cross was and he stood there and he looked at that cross where the Lord died for him. And he said when he understood that and he saw that, that burden fell broke and fell off his back and rolled down the hill and disappeared into a tomb. And he never had it again. Oh, what a wonderful feeling. I know the night in my life when I trusted the Lord and that burden rolled away. And we used to sing that in Sunday school. You know, when I was growing up, rolled away, rolled away, rolled away. Remember that? Everybody remember the motions we used to do? Those of us who, I used to sing that. 
I sang that when I was five. I sang that when I was ten. I sang that when I was mm, about fourteen. But after that, I was too big to sing that anymore. That was little kids' songs. We didn't sing that. We sat at the back, all us tough teenagers. We sat at the back like this. And listen. And we, and we let all the little kids sing the songs and go through the motion. We're going to do no roll away and, and all my burdens rolled away and, and all that. And our burdens hadn't rolled away. We were so full of ourselves and so full of being cool and proud and hanging out with our friends. We were just there because they were there. And they were just there because their parents made them come. And our parents made us come. And so there we were. And we hung out together. And if they had only known that none of us ever talked about anything spiritual. We'd they'd take us to the conferences and we'd go back into the bathroom back there before the conference, the Bible conference started, and we'd all be back there combing our hair. I ain't got any left to comb now. It's a lot easier to maintain like that. It's like having cement instead of grass in your front yard, you know. <laughs> so we comb our hair and look in the mirror and fix our shirt and get out our aftershave lotion and put it on and all this and argue about where we were going to sit and where the girls sit and where and all. We didn't hear a word they said. And I worry about young people because for my foolishness and stupidity, I'm not talking about you now, I'm talking about me. I didn't come to know the Lord and have my sins remitted until I was 24. You talk about a lame brain. 24 years I lived and went to camps and conferences and church meetings and read the Bible through from cover to cover six times and I was going to hell. I needed to have a knowledge of salvation. I needed to have my sins remitted. I needed to think more about all those songs I sang. And all those lies I told when I sang those songs. Anybody tell a lie tonight? Now, I'm being mean tonight, but you know I love you. (laughs) Anybody tell a lie tonight? Change my heart, oh God. You better be careful. You better be careful. A.W. Tozer said Christians tell more lies when they sing hymns than any other time and than anybody else. Better be careful. Knowledge of the salvation unto his people through the remission of their sins because Israel, the condition of the nation of Israel was they didn't know what it meant to be saved. They didn't have their sins remitted. They were a bunch of religious people who went to meetings and faithfully fulfilled their activities and they were L-O-S-T lost. And maybe God is saying something to somebody here tonight about the knowledge of salvation and about having your sins put away and about coming into real, living relationship with God and stop being a faker and a crowd follower and a people pleaser and a tradition keeper and to know the true and living God. Sin is a reproach to any people. Verse 79. To give light to them that sit in darkness and the shadow of death. <gasps> he, what did he say? He's talking about Israel. The people who live in darkness and the shadow of death. 
to guide our feet into the way of peace because they weren't in the way of peace. Spiritually speaking, this is the way they lived. So these were the dark and dreary conditions of the nation of Israel at the time when the prophet was going to be born. And when God looked at that nation of Israel and described them with these phrases and these words we have here in Luke chapter 1, I can't help but think about the evangelical community today. The consumer-oriented church, the user-friendly church, the entertainment church, the feel-good-and-have-a-good-time church. The church that's concerned about marketing and getting as many people in as possible. And who measures her success only in her numbers and not in her spirituality. Where are the voices in the wilderness today? Where are the men of God who will stand up and say, this isn't what's in the script. We'll call people back to the word of God. Look with me just briefly at John's childhood and home life. Because I'll tell you what, God, when he wanted to make a prophet, he found a couple, a family, a man and a woman who could give a godly home to a child, who could raise a child in a godly way. And I just wonder what he would do with some of us. His parents were spiritual people. You cannot raise a spiritual child, a spiritually minded child, if you are not a spiritually minded adult. You cannot raise a godly child if you are not a godly mother, if you are not a godly father. You cannot raise a committed child if you are not a committed parent. It don't happen. What do we know about John's parents? They were spiritual people. Spiritual people. Godly people. Devout people. People people who had reality in their relationship with God. And that's the best gift any child can have. And thank God that in His grace and mercy, when some of us haven't had that, God has reached out and blessed us and saved us and changed our lives anyway. But He wanted to start with a baby in this case. The best gift that parents can give their children is not to be rich, not to be funny, not to be cool, not to be modern, not to be well-dressed and well-educated, not to have a good retirement plan. The best gift that any parent can give their child is to be a spiritually-minded person, a lover of God and His Word and a follower. That is the best inheritance. And you know what? There are a lot of children in evangelical churches who are not getting that inheritance. The parents want the church to do it all. And they don't have any time. They're so busy making money and so busy enjoying all the things that they possess. They don't have any time for a family life and a home life. And they don't teach their children. They raise their children like animals in some case. They don't even know manners. They don't even know how to behave. They don't even know how to be courteous. They don't know anything, much less do they know anything about God. And they never see a model of Christianity from their mother or from their father. And those relationships at home, how are they going to grow up to be spiritually minded people unless God intervenes in their life? And thank God he does. And we know God can do that. But we're not going to use that as an excuse, those of us who are parents, to slough off our job and to not do what we're supposed to do. God calls parents tonight to be like the parents of John the Baptist. 
Hear the word of the Lord. There was in the day of Herod, the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah and his wife of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. So the first thing we're going to say about his parents is they were righteous. And what does that mean? Well, and it says they were both righteous. You got that, didn't you? You got that. They were both righteous. And what does that mean, they were righteous? Because the Bible says there is none righteous. No, not one. Romans chapter 3. That means the natural condition of the human being. No one is righteous by nature. You weren't born righteous. And you weren't educated to be righteous. The only way you can become righteous is if God declares you righteous. The righteousness which is by faith. When a person repents of his sin and trusts in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, God declares that person to be righteous. And he gives him the righteousness of Christ in that moment. These people were both righteous, says God. Says who? Says God. He sent the the angel, Gabriel, to these people. They were both righteous before God, it says. Are you righteous? Both of them. You know, in a lot of homes, it's not that way. The woman, the wife, the mother, she fears the Lord. She reads his word. She prays. She's a person who's trusted in the Lord. She has repented of her sin, and she knows what God did to her, how he saved her, what a mess her life was. She knows it, and she's saved. She's not perfect, but she's saved. But then there's her husband. Well, he'll go to meetings, and he'll say he believes, and sometimes he'll even get baptized. But anybody who lives in that house knows he's not saved. He's not righteous. And that poor woman goes through life like dragging an anchor with somebody who should be the head of the house, who doesn't want to read the Bible, doesn't want to study the Bible, doesn't want to do what God's Word says. And then you have the the opposite case. Where that man is saved. He really came to the end of himself and got saved. He trusted the Lord and God changed his life. And his wife went along with him to church. And she heard all that talk about believing and trusting the Lord and being born again. And she cried a little bit and said she trusted the Lord too. But her heart is just like the freezer compartment of the refrigerator. About spiritual things. She doesn't care about spiritual things. She'll maintain the appearance. But she's not saved. She doesn't know what it means to be righteous. There is no burning love in her heart for God. You see. A child grows up like that. And sooner or later. You listen to what I'm going to tell you now. Sooner or later that child's going to see that. And if you're the unsaved member of your marriage. And your home. Do you want your child to grow up to be like you? You better do some serious soul searching tonight. They were both righteous before God. That's the best gift you can give your children. You'd be better off if you had to choose between giving them a million dollars and giving them a a godly and righteous mother or father. You'd be better off to take that million dollars and go out there and throw it in in the drain, the gutter, out in the street 
throw it away. Put it in a shredder and get rid of it. If that's standing between you and God, if that's standing between you and the gift that you can give your child of being a godly mother or father, whatever it is, out. Because what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? They were both righteous. They were both righteous. And many homes are not that way. And the children are affected by it. Listen. Listen to what I'm going to tell you now. And you young people know it. Children are not stupid. And children are not blind. You think they don't see it. You think they don't catch your tone of voice. You think they don't catch your carefully covered up lack of interest in spiritual things. You think they don't know. But they do know. They see it. They know it. And the Bible says that before you stumble one of these children and cause him to fall, it would be better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and for you to be thrown into the deepest sea. Now, that's not my idea. That's God's idea. John's parents were both righteous. If you're not righteous here tonight, if you've never come to true and living faith in Jesus Christ and your sins have never been forgiven and you've never been changed to be a new person, you get righteous with God tonight. That's my message to you. You get righteous with God tonight. Get his righteousness. Come to him in faith and repentance from your sin and from who you are and what you've been. And you come to him and you take him by faith. Lord, you died for me. You died to take away my sin and to change my life. And I've been resisting you and I've been faking it. And tonight I'm giving myself to you. I want to be righteous. I don't want to be religious. I want to be righteous. And he can make you righteous. And it's not a process. It's a divine act that takes place in an instant of time when a person comes to him and believes. You are one second away right now from being righteous. That's all. The word of God is near to you, he said, even in your mouth. He said, you know what that means? He said, all you got to do is swallow. <clears throat> That's how close it is. They were both righteous. And they were both blameless. And you see, when you talk about righteous, that's one thing. That's their position before God. And when he talks about blameless, and we got to hurry because i got to stop. When he talks about blameless, he's talking about the way they lived, about their conduct. You see, righteous is what God declared them when they had faith in Him. Blameless is how they lived. Look at it. Blameless, walking, In all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Their walk means their conduct. That's how they lived. Dwight L. Moody said, Most people talk cream, but live skimmed milk. Well, skimmed milk, well, they have to say zero fat milk today, I guess. We got some more varieties of milk. I stood there in the grocery store the other day and looked and I said, have mercy, who in the world knows what kind of milk to pick? (laughs) Americans, they think they're the best country in the world because they have 23 varieties of milk and 400 varieties of cereal to choose from when you go down the... I'm just teasing you. Don't get upset with me. Not Bible knowledge only. And I know a lot of people who are proud of their Bible knowledge and of what they heard and of what they read. They're proud of their Bible knowledge and they like to argue the fine points. But their life and their knowledge are a dichotomy. A completely separate 
compartments. Their knowledge is way up here and their walk is way down here. And they're always excusing themselves, talking about, in certain circles, they're always talking about positional truth. Our position in Christ. Regardless of how we live, if we're believers, our position in Christ. And they, it is a point that is taught. The, our position in Christ is taught, and I believe it. Don't misunderstand me. It's taught in the book of Philippians. We are in him, blameless in him. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But what I'm telling you is that there are people who don't have a position in Christ. And the way you tell it is by the way they walk. If any man says, I know him and does not keep his commandments, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. It doesn't say he's a positional Christian. God's word says he is a liar. And I'm not going to reduce that. There's no reduction in price. No sales. No bargains. By this do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. They were walking in all the ordinances and the commandments of the Lord. They didn't play a cafeteria style Christianity. You know what I'm talking about where you go, you go into these cafeterias and you get your tray. And you get over here and you go to the first part. And I don't know why they do this. I always put the desserts first. Seem like. Well, anyway, you just look at that and you say, mm, I'll take one of those. And you come along here and there's the green beans and, and squash. Here's the bread. You get some bread. And, oh, here's the steak. Now, Bill, he's getting excited because I'm talking about the steak. And Adol, he got excited about the, I didn't say broccoli, sorry. <laughs> See, what I'm talking about, you pick and choose what you want. And people say, well, you know, um, I don't really, I don't see how we can really do this that the Bible says. I don't believe God means for us to, and you know that thing he said in Corinthians, oh, that was written to the Corinthians. And they're picking and choosing. Cafeteria style. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to observe all, like we say it in the South, all things, all things whatsoever I have commanded you. He said in John chapter 15, He that has my word and keeps it, he it is that loves me. All things. James chapter 2, what does it say? James chapter 1, what does it say? Excuse me. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Self-deceived is one of the most pathetic people there is. Self-deceived. God never said, well, just believe the what they call the primary or fundamental doctrines of the faith and all those other secondary or other non-important. What do you mean non-important? Jesus said, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And they were walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. How about that? And they were ordinary people just like you and me. 
But way back then, people who really were saved, who were really righteous, you could tell it by their obedience. And you know what? Way up here now, you can too. It's the same. When people say they got all the talk and none of the walk, the Bible says, if any man says, I know him, he says, he talks right. He says, I know him. And keep not his commandments. He is a liar. If he talks one way and walks another way, believe the way he walks. That's what he is. See. And children see that in their parents. They know if their parents talk the talk in the meeting and don't walk the walk at home. And if you want to raise a child for God, you better start learning to walk the walk. And I'm speaking to myself too. We have to walk the walk. We have to obey the word. Some families never read the word. Some parents have never read the word of God to their children. They just hope they get it at church. What do you think you have your parents for? Raising children is not like raising hogs. You raise hogs, you just have a pen to keep them in and throw the slops out there for them to eat. And if they get sick, you call the vet and he comes and looks at them. And if it's raining or cold, you put a shed up and let them get in it and get warm. You think that's all there is to raising children? You just give them a place, a house to live in and clothes to wear and food to eat. And if they get sick, you take them to the doctor. You're raising hogs. Excuse me. Now, if I offended you by saying that, you come up and tell me and I'll apologize. But I'm going to tell you what. A lot of people... Don't put any more effort into raising children than some people I know do in raising hogs. God made you a parent. You got a big job. And you better spend some time on that job. And you better think about the fact that the man and the woman who's the father and the mother, they themselves, their character, their life is the message that their children are getting. They were both blameless. What a blessing John had. A careful man I want to be. A little fellow follows me. I do not dare to go astray for fear he'll go the self-same way. When I look back upon life's way, what joy it will be if I can say, I've led him in the path I trod, the way that leads to heaven and God. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for this time that we could be together this evening and we thank you for this little glimpse we've had of the conditions in the nation of Israel and this happy picture that we have had though short of John's parents we thank you and we bless you for every home where they are both righteous before God and walking in all the commandments of the Lord blameless And every one of us who is not that way tonight, speak to our hearts and may changes be made for your eternal glory and our blessing. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.